welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. Uh, my name is Callum Watt. I'm back in the chair this week uh, and I am joined by Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. Ewan Hodson. Hello, hello. And Lee Alsop. Hello, everyone. And this week, of course, we have seen uh, an insurrection take place in the US Capitol building. Um, fortunate uh, that it clearly didn't succeed. There was a, a, an intention, perhaps, from those people uh, to stop the certification of the election results from November, from the presidential election results. Uh, it's a kind of complicated process. I'm sure many people are familiar, but I'll just give a quick rundown. The President of the United States isn't directly uh, elected by the people. The, he is elected by the states. Uh, and the way that the uh, the view of the people is expressed is that uh, the people in each individual state elect a certain number of electors um, who then go to uh, Washington. Normally they go to Washington. I think it's probably done remotely this year. Um, then they elect vote in electoral college. They need 270 votes to get a majority. And then the result of that secondary election uh, is then ratified by the United States Senate. That last section, the Senate ratification, it has been for over 200 years uh, a formality. The, the votes of the people have been taken uh, as read, as it were. Um, however, on this occasion, obviously, with a demagogue such as Donald Trump in charge, uh, things have been a little bit different. Uh, the last well, in the months leading up to the election itself, he was warning that there would be uh, endemic attempts at voter fraud, attempts to rig the elections. When the elections themselves happened and he lost quite comfortably in the end, um, he continued those allegations of rigging, launching lawsuits. Um, he was backed up even by some people in the Senate himself, initially by Mitch McConnell, uh, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. Um, but then Mitch McConnell later changed his tune um, as the lawsuits that Donald Trump's teams were launching uh, fell one by one. He changed his tune and accepted the results. Some Republicans didn't. Uh, they continued to say to their base that uh, this was a rigged election that was being stolen from Donald Trump. Um, and the culmination of all of this was uh, a huge rally by thousands of Trump supporters uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, egged on by the president himself, um, who said we're going to march up to up Pennsylvania Avenue and uh, give the Republicans, the good Republicans uh, senators, we're going to cheer them on and we're going to uh, give the uh, give the the weaker one's courage, I think, is uh, is what he said. Um, so the clear implication was that they would go in there and, and they would somehow force the uh, Senate not to ratify the election. Of course, what happened is that they stormed in and then basically nothing really happened except for four people losing their lives, um, lawmakers having to flee for their lives, um, several offices being raided, documents being stolen, um, and a wave of sort of terror and panic, basically uh, sending a shockwave through the uh, 
US political establishment, which ordinarily, I think probably we on the left in principle would um, quite like to see, but it is also uh, quite dangerous to imagine. Lots of those people in that crowd were police officers, members of the military. Um, one imagines, you know, this isn't the sort of positive sort of public um, public action. Um, one imagines if uh, if Donald Trump had been a, a more competent want to be dictator, um, if he had uh, had any sympathy at all amongst um, the top brass in the military, uh, in the police, uh, and in in the the wider political establishment, this could have been quite a dangerous situation, couldn't have it, uh, Callum? Well, yeah, it, it it potentially could have been quite a serious situation. It was, um, it, luckily, it seems to have been a flash in the pan in terms of the storming of the Capitol building was, uh, well, it was put down fairly quickly. But it is a coup. It was an, a coup attempt when you look at how it was orchestrated by by Trump at his rally just beforehand. They make their moves over to the Capitol building and before long, they're climbing the walls, they're smashing down the doors, and they're storming the chambers of the elected representatives in that country. I don't think that that's the way you go about anything whatsoever. There is very much a difference between protest and storming a parliament for the sake of stopping a democratic vote being ratified. There's, there's legitimate means to storm an, a, a legislative body um, not for stopping a vote being ratified, but the suffragettes did it, and they did it out of protest and gained much uh, exposure for their cause there. I think that that's a more legitimate means of doing so, but protesting, or what they called protesting, or stopping the steal, as they put it, is not the way forward, because actually they know the numbers. They know that there was no electoral fraud. They know that Donald Trump's days are numbered and he's simply trying to cling on to power so I think that it was completely wrong what they were doing there was no reason for it and it was extremely worrying extremely worrying that perhaps if Trump as you say was a bit more competent and got his uh, got his pieces in line as it were he could have very much orchestrated something far more serious and far more violent that could have spilt over not just outside of DC but across that country so we, I think we've got to be grateful that perhaps somebody a bit more stable in Biden, albeit not the person with politics that we'd agree with as, as such all the time, but he's certainly more stable and he certainly respects a democratic vote when he sees one. So we've got to be thankful for that. Well, one hopes so. Anyway, uh, Ewan. Um, I've heard, <laughs> well, I've heard a kind of like a lot of different comparisons um people have compared it's like the march in rome or um like the bill hall putsch and stuff but i think one of the interesting comparisons i've read is uh one on the willington insurrection of 1898 in which i think it's south carolina a number of left-wing um at the time republicans uh white republicans and uh black populists as it were then got voted into office um state uh, i think it was state senate and they start um and the reaction of the local democratic kind of at time democratic elite was that they were going to you know 
do things that they didn't want, so they staged an insurrection. That one was a lot better planned. That one had like, um, that one was literally a coup. Um, it had soldiers with rapid firing weapons being deployed against uh, rioters and stuff. Uh, and so when I looked at what happened in Washington, I was reminded of that and how we're kind of lucky that this one wasn't a planned operation with literal light infantry involved and, you know, um, they bring out a Gatling gun or what, you know, like this, this was almost kind of reminiscent of that kind of like kind of anarchist style kind of um, where it's like, you know, some people have some ideas of what they want to do and others have other ideas what to do. And there's not really a planned kind of organization to it. I think there was a very vague plan of what was going to happen, which was, hey, we're just going to march in here and stop people from voting. But you hear some of the people that were going in, some were just like, you know, planned to just scare the, um, you know, do as Trump asked, which was to, um, what was it, uh, to like, you know, give confidence to the weaker ones, as he said. Um, but there were others who were like, uh, there was like, I think three have been arrested and they had a plan to uh, lynch Mike Pence and, um, uh, and they had zip ties and everything. So what this is, it's lucky that it wasn't more organized, but also I think it's very interesting in that this isn't the first time this has happened in American history. And so I could see it happening again, not something like this exactly, but something on a smaller scale and probably more violent may actually happen again. So, um, yeah, I'm apprehensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the point you made about the um, about them not being organised and sort of vaguely wanting to stop the vote, I mean, on, on its own terms, I suppose, they did stop the vote for about 12 hours. Um, and then then it, uh, uh, they, they just resumed a few hours later once the room had been cleared and they did it again. And, of course, it actually had the opposite effect because there were a couple of Republican senators who were initially going to vote down the ratification, uh, like Kelly Loeffler, for instance, from um, Georgia, who obviously just lost her seat. Um, she changed her vote uh, in, in, the wake of the, uh, in, in the wake of the insurrection. Uh, Bradley, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think... Anyone that was hoping for 2021 to be a bit of a quieter year, my God, what a start we've had. Um, I, I think there's a few things. I think I think we need to be quite careful as the left about w what it is exactly, you know, being quite clear about what about this incident is so disturbing. So I think it's quite easy to, to slip into a very sort of liberal sort of, um, you know, denunciation of anything that disrupts the, norm, the normal business of, of, of life and, and capitalism. You know, so, so this idea that, you know, it's never appropriate to take any sort of radical action that involves occupying a building or anything. I think we need to be very clear as the left that we're not saying that and, and be clear what our issues with this are. I mean, the first and very obvious one is that the reason they were there was nonsense, that they have invented, um, you know, a steal of democracy. They, you know, Trump has invented this narrative. You could see him building up to it way before the election count, you know, before voting had even started to take place. 
in the months preceding the election, he was developing this narrative of the stolen election. And it's all complete rubbish. It's a complete fabrication. There's no evidence of any significant electoral fraud. So, you know, that's the first case. They haven't really got a point and there's not, no, no, I don't think any sort of fair and balanced mind could look at what's happened in that election and think, yes, there's, there's a good case that there might have been significant electoral fraud there. The evidence just isn't there. And um, I think this, the second point is that quite clearly, at least some in that crowd seem prone towards some sort of violence. You know, it, was, it wasn't a completely, very clearly non-violent protest or a very, very clear non-violent um, occupation of a building. You know, there, there was damaged property. There were people stealing things. I believe some in the crowd were armed um, from what, you know, it's America, so it's probably not a surprise if they are. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of altercations with the police. So, you know, it, it was very clear that it wasn't a non-violent protest either. Um, and, and I suppose the third point is they weren't just occupying physical space. At least some of those protesters intended to, to try and disrupt the democratic operation of, of the country. Um, and I can think of very few instances where I would think that Parliament shouldn't have a vote on something. You know, even if I disagree with the way Parliament is going to vote on something, it was very clear that majority Tory House is going to vote a certain way that we don't agree with. I can think of very few instances where I think it would be appropriate morally and politically to try and disrupt that vote. The only way, the only time I can think of it is if it was some sort of vote on, you know, denying rights for minority groups, you know, things that democracy actually should, you know, you shouldn't use a representative body to actually decide on. I don't think Parliament, I don't think it would ever be appropriate for Parliament to vote on taking away rights from the LGBT community or something like that, for instance. So I can, I can sort of see maybe in a very limited set of circumstances when it might be appropriate to try and disrupt a democratic meeting. Um, but they're very rare and certainly there's not a case for it in this instance. Um, so I think we, we need to we need to be clear then as the left what, what those issues with this this protest well it, more than a protest wasn't it? I don't quite know what to call it was it a riot was it a protest insurrection I, I don't think any of us are quite sure what we need to call it um, but yeah so I think we need to be clear what those those problems are that we have with it um, I think the other point is what does this mean in the future so I, I'm quite concerned I think there was an article in the Jacobin that was that suggested that this could become a, a radicalising moment for someone on the far right. Yeah, if you if you think back to sort of what the the legacy of the big tuition fees protests were in 2010, obviously very different circumstances, largely peaceful protests against you know a, a horrible uh, government policy. Although there obviously were instances of, of people doing stupid things there, and, and windows were broken, and fire extinguishers were chucked off a, a roof at one point. Uh, but obviously not comparing the two events at all. But for many on the student left. Um, you know, that was a sort of a radicalising moment and, and that atmosphere is a, a radicalising atmosphere. And, and you know, it, that, that's had a legacy on, on left politics in, shoot, in the student world, but also I suppose eventually as those people have gone past university, it's had a, an, an impact and a legacy on left politics in, in the UK. Maybe this will event will have the same sort of impact for, for some of those on the far right in the US. Um, and I, I think it's worrying. I, think, I don't think Trump necessarily meant for it to go as far as it did. Um, but he, he very clearly had pre-planned to create some sort of spectacle and some sort of disruption um, that day. He, I think he probably probably got some some words from his advisors when it when it started to spiral a little bit out of control. And it, you know his statements since have, have sort of you know suggested that he didn't want all of that to happen. Um, but clearly he was trying to generate some sort of spectacle, um, and and maybe the, the grassroots element of it went beyond his control. Um, where will some of that energy go next? You now have a significant proportion of the US population, not by any means a majority opinion, but a significant group in the US that thinks that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president and that he has not been legitimately elected. They have shown the other day that they are willing to storm, you know, the the, the symbol of democracy in the US, 
smash it up, steal things from it, um, attempt to disrupt uh, you know, the democratic business of the country, what are they going to do next? Where will that energy go? That That's the thing I'm concerned about. You know, is it is it possible we could see a rise in far right terrorism in the US? What 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 happens next? Where does that energy go? And what and what's the left going to do about it? I think are the questions on my mind after seeing those things the other day. That's a very good point. I mean, obviously, as I've talked about before, um, I I was in the process that you mentioned ten years ago, and it certainly was a radicalizing moment for me. Um, I think another interesting point though is that. They were, if you look at the footage of of the storming of Capitol Hill uh, earlier this week, um, yeah, it's quite ridiculous, really, because you can see the there's this tiny line of police officers. Looks like like half a dozen of them on this particular path, trying to hold back all of these people, and it, it almost looks like they're not even trying. Um, you know, it's it's quite uh, um, plain that they were let in, and I do feel like. And actually, a, a part of me is always suspected as well that that might, may have been a factor as well 10 years ago in our own protests, um, albeit for wildly different motivations. I think in, in Britain, the police may have wanted an incident to happen like Millbank Tower uh, as a message to the government that the, that the government needed to maintain funding for the police. Um, I've no, no real evidence for that, but that, that's something I've sometimes thought. Um but in the case of America, it's clearly probably more likely that they just have sympathy for these particular protests. Obviously, as we've said, that a lot of those protesters, insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, were police officers themselves and were apparently flashing their credentials in order to try and get in the buildings. Um, whereas, by contrast, um, we know that protesters on the left would be treated very differently. And it was very interesting that this was actually highlighted by the incoming president, Joe Biden, uh, himself. We know that he is, um, by our own standards, a conservative. Um, He's passed some pretty awful authoritarian bills in his time. Um, And yet uh, he he was standing on a national platform um, saying, we know, don't we all know, don't we? that uh, if those were Black Lives Matter protesters, they would have been treated very differently. And he mentioned the, the, the famous picture that's been going around this week of uh, armed soldiers basically standing on Capitol Hill last time there was a Black, Ma- Black Lives Matter protest uh, in Washington. Um, and uh, he said, we need to do something about it. So I'm not sure what he's actually going to do because obviously it's uh, to, to uh, I'm not sure really what he means by that because um, obviously he and his party have a long history of, of propping up the police and militarization of the police in the United States. It'd be quite remarkable if that trend were turned around all of a sudden just because of this, uh, of this particular incident um, at Capitol Hill, but, but maybe. Um, Ewan, what do you think? You've got your hand up. Um, what Bradley was talking about earlier about um, what the future may hold, I think in general, I think this will be um, 
there will be more direct action, as it were, and we could see something a bit similar to um, the kind of early 1990s. Well, the 1990s in America, where you had this rise in the militia movement in America and right-wing terrorism, which we kind of just forget about now. We just kind of ignore that that was a thing, but literally they had... um, well, there was the Oklahoma City bombings, and like that killed, I think, about 100 people. And that was a right-wing terrorist. So you could probably see a return to something a bit like that. But on um, what Joe Biden will do, Joe Biden, it's interesting, um, because Joe Biden himself isn't exactly what you'd call a left-wing man, you know, he's, he's what you'd call a democratic centrist. He's quite conservative by British standards. But he... I think he follows the will of his party a lot more than probably someone else, like, you know, someone like, um, per se, Bill Clinton would have, or... Um, or Keir Ke- Starmer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, like, Joe Biden... Like you, um, what was it? Um, I remember hearing something. It was on a uh, Novara Media where they were talking about um, someone was saying Joe Biden has a more left wing kind of uh, environmental policy than um, Bernie Sanders did in 20, 2016 when he ran for um, the nomination. So obviously, Joe Biden understands that he's now in charge of a more left wing party. Like, almost all centrists in the Democratic Party who are have any form of brains whatsoever understand that. You have, um, you mentioned the Georgia races, you have uh, John Ossoff, who, Ossoff, Ossoff, whatever, um, who's quite, you know, he's quite a centrist Democrat, but he knew which platforms to run on. He ran on, you know, the $2,000 stimulus checks. He ran on kind of, you know, so kind of like you know social liberal grounds because he knew those were the things that would not only win and votes but also those were the things that were popular and those are the things that people want and he should run on those platforms because he understands that those are things that his constituents potential constituents would want so he did that and so i think there will be some possible attempted reform of police how will it go probably go terribly because america america gets rid of all its trade unions apart from the police ones and the police ones are probably the most powerful trade unions in america still which is bad because the police unions shouldn't have that much power it's the weird thing where uh all the unions that could potentially do some good don't have any power the one union that does quite a lot of bad has the most power in American politics. So will there be attempted reform? Yes. Will it go well? Probably not. But I think the main thing we're probably going to be seeing is a radicalization of people. But also I think we will probably see a rise in militias. We've already seen that anyway, but now that the people have gone, we will see that. Um, you know, now that Trump's gone, you're going to see people who you know, um, who in 2016 would have, you know, been spending the 2010s just, you know, doing Unite the Right, but with bombs, um, 
now they get the chance to like appear and tell everyone, hey, we are your salvation, as it were. So you're probably going to see a lot more direct action from the right. You're probably going to see a lot more right-wing terrorism. And you're probably going to see the return of the militia movements being a big thing alongside attempted police reform being probably being curtailed by the police. So America's going to be having a fun few years, I guess. I think that there's some cause for um, optimism, though. I mean, the left seems to be better organised um, in that country. They've um, those uh, announcements, I think, yesterday um, that, that the Biden administration isn't going to be quite so obsessed with deficit spending that they need to invest in the economy to recover from um, COVID-19. Um, so, you know, there's some positivity there. It's quite clear that um, the political wins maybe in the fa- in, in favour of the left. Um, that might lead to some confrontation, of course, because we've just been talking about the the far right are also emboldened. You know, as I said earlier, you know, um, if once you've been to uh, a process like that, it's um, almost addictive in a way. Um, I mean, clearly there were some people in that crowd because obviously there's the, there was a woman who was maced and really wasn't expected to receive that, expecting to receive that sort of treatment. She seemed quite shocked. Um, but once you've been through that experience, once you've been charged by the police and, and you've stormed a building, it's um, almost intoxicating in a way. Um, and they might try and seek to do that again. Um, what do you think, Callum? Do you think we're going to see um, a rise in conflicts between left and right I- I- in America? Um, and will where what side will the new presidency of Joe Biden ultimately fall on, do you think? Well, I, I think that in America, it's a very interesting situation. It's um, For me, I think Biden's going to probably try and walk the middle line for some some areas of policy um we saw it in uh, during the election where at times he seemed to uh sometimes really back some really progressive policies and then at other times he would he would try and toe that middle line to try and appeal to people on what would be considered the american right um in terms of how people are reacting to it i i do share the concerns that we could see some rising militias, rising terrorist activity in the US. I think that that's extremely concerning. Um, But they would also be emboldened by the fact that they managed to storm the legislative building for the nation. I think any group would be emboldened by that. Um, As to whether how Biden will react to it, I think that he's got to, I think he, as as, as somebody said earlier, he, he is best suited to being seen as a strong man shutting things down than somebody that's trying to uh, use, use I suppose, diplomacy to shut things down. So perhaps in reaction to right-wing terrorist actions, he's going to take a harder stance on them, make the police focus less on Black Lives Matter groups, which the 99.999% of those protests are completely peaceful and actually look at the gun-wielding um, bigots that are out on the streets of America and actually see to 
put them in their place, really. Um, as to whether he'll be successful in that, again, um, I, I don't know whether he might end up getting distracted by the economic problems of rebuilding from the pandemic. As we know, America is very much gripped by that. He has got four years, but that's by the time he's focused on rebuilding jobs and confidence in <clears throat> in the government, we could see a uh, his time his time running out as as president, and then he's got to start campaigning again um, if he chooses to take up that second term. So it will be intriguing to watch, but I think it does have parallels with what we find over here where we have um it's less violent obviously over here but we do have large mobs uh, collecting in london causing violence towards the police towards the public looking to intimidate politicians outside the palace of westminster i think that there is parallels and i think that we're in now this post brexit post trumpian phase as 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 we seem to be going hand in hand with the us through these phases, through these different challenges. So it will be interesting to see whether those parallels continue and uh, we still have an emboldened right over here as much as the right seem to be emboldened in the US. Perhaps it would take um, for, for the, uh, the, the Johnson government to go before we see any such parallels here come to the mainstream or at least to the forefront. Hmm. So Bradley, are, are we in a... Uh, post-Trumpian um, phase now, and uh, that's a very good point as well about the the, uh, the way the working classes in America in America will behave. Um, obviously, um, Donald Trump had a significant amount of support amongst the working class, and also managed to improve his vote amongst blacks and Latinos as well over uh, 2016. Um, so maybe not Trump himself. Obviously, there's a possibility he might be impeached or banned from uh, from from running again. But then you've obviously also got people like Ted Cruz as well, um, who might be much more competent at uh, sort of harnessing the sort of resentment at the prevailing economic structures that we currently have. Um, is there is that sort of uh, a, a possible outcome in four years' time that we see a, a new demagogue rising in in Donald Trump's place, um, and uh, and and being a lot better at it, or worse from our perspective, Bradley? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I mean, I I, I read something. Really, I think it was the Jacobin article again, where they yeah they said yeah we always deride Trump as a bit of an idiot, and he, in many ways he is. But he's very, very good at mobilising that base, isn't he? You know, we can't deny that the the, the changes that have, have come to the, to the American political scene since Trump declared his candidacy back in 2015 or whenever it was. You know, we can't deny that he's been quite good at whipping up that base and, and getting their support to the point where they seem to be willing to, to storm the Capitol building in, in, in his defence. So he's very good at that. So I don't, you know, we we can't completely dismiss that. Um, and I think, you know, for me, all of these issues ultimately um, are, are rooted in f failures of, of neoliberalism. You know, we're in a period where capitalism cannot deliver for people uh, and, it, and it's, it's going to continue along this road. We're going to continue to have ever escalating crises, you know, through, through possibly more pandemics, through, through climate change. Uh, for economic instability, um, you know, these things are going to be with us for as long as we've got the economic system we currently have. 
So yes, whether it's the next selection, you know, the next year selection, or, or a little bit further down the line, I think we will continue to see demagogues rising. Um, we'll continue to, to see far right populists. Um, and, and the question there is what we as the left in Britain, in the US and, and around the world, what is our counter to that? Because that's the only real alternative, isn't it? We've seen that centrist politics is broadly unable to cope with this. I, I think seeing Biden's victory as an outstanding, you know, return, a, a resounding return to normal, normal politics would be very misguided. Um, you know, people need more radical solutions to, to break with the status quo. And if, if they're not getting it from us, if they're not going to get it from the left, if we're not convincing them, then they're going to turn to the far right. That, that's the alternative, isn't it? So it's up to us, basically, to, to, to stop them. So that means as the left, we need to be more organised in, in Britain, particularly, I think. I think we're sort of in a bit of a, a post-Corbyn, post-2019 sort of lull that has been exacerbated by the pandemic and everyone being in lockdown and, and not being able to meet physically and, and not being able to do the normal sort of protest behaviours that we would normally do. Um, but we, we need to, you know, and it, it's looking like we're going to be in that, I mean, we'll come, come on to COVID in a minute, I'm sure, but it looks like we're going to be in that state for a while to come yet. So we need to rapidly, as the left, you know, pull ourselves out of that a little bit and start being bold and radical again and start aiming towards power. Um, I think there, there was a good bit on Navarra Media the other day about some of these new right-wing uh, te- tele- television stations that are going to be coming up, one being fronted by uh, Andrew Neil, you know, doing a sort of prime time sort of new, uh, I don't know what it's going to be, a news piece or an interview thing. Um, but he's going to have his own show on it and, it, and it's been backed, you know, £60 million, pounds, you know, large financial backing for, to, to launch a new media landscape, really. Um, and Aaron Bristani's point there was that the right don't think in terms of the next six months or the next year, they're thinking about the next decade, is, is what they're thinking about. Um, and the left needs to start doing that. Really, we need, we need to start mobilising. We need to change the media landscape. We need to um, be serious about cap- recapturing power in the Labour Party. We need to be serious about getting grassroots movements, um, you know, working together and collaborating and, and taking the fight back to the right. So we need to be doing all those things. Otherwise, yes, we'll increasingly see people like Donald Trump, whether they're quite as bizarre as him, maybe not, but people like him in power in countries across the world. Mm. Mm. Oh, no, I agree with that. Definitely, we need to uh, uh, do something to change the media landscape at the at the, at the end of the day. And we will come on to COVID in, in, in a moment. I'll just get you and him first and we'll move in because he's got his hand up. I'll just some final quick points. Um, we are in a much better state, I think, of the left than we were in um, something like, you know, the student um, student protests in like 2011, like you know that that was after years of Blairism, and like the only real like left wing opposition was the Stop the War Coalition, which kind of fizzled out eventually, and Respect, which just became the George Galloway vehicle that everyone hated. Um, so we are in a much better position um, than we were back then and even though Keir Starmer's in charge I think the left have more power the left have more say there are more left-wingers and it's not like 2011 where like the voice of the left is you know uh, Diane Abbott didn't really win and like you know the choice was like Ed Miliband doing not trying to not piss off his um right-wing supporters and not wanting to be the man he really wants to be. So we are in a better position. And I think that is one thing to be optimistic about. And 
once lockdown is over and once COVID is less of a thing, I think the left is in a better position to capitalise uh, post-COVID than I think, I've, in Britain at least, than the right. Because the right, like, the right is kind of eating itself over here in Britain. It's not doing very well. And, like, you know, it's been in government for, like, you know, over a decade. So there is more opportunity, I think, for the left now than we per se had 10 years ago. So we are in a much better position, whatever way you slice it. Yeah, no, I I'd, I would certainly uh, agree with that. Um, having sort of uh, begun in politics 10 years ago during that during that era, era you described, um, I can certainly say it's a lot better. I mean, at the end of the day, we're in we're in what you would probably what will probably be considered historically a revolutionary period, and you know, in revolutionary periods, you get a rise in in progressive forces, and you also get a rise of reactionary forces. So I think seeing ourselves in that historic context is important. You know, the world isn't falling around uh, around us just randomly. This is something that happens, much like a pandemic, um, quite frequently. Uh, in human history, and we we have to adapt to that. And uh, when the pieces are in flux, it's really an opportunity to rearrange them in in the ways that uh, you guys have been talking about, and others have been talking about elsewhere. Uh, and of course, speaking of um, pandemics and how we deal with them, um, we in the UK uh, are not dealing with it particularly well. Um, what I was going to say as well is that obviously Donald Trump, he's not going to his inauguration. He did a, he was, he did seem to be positioning himself to play golf in Scotland uh, on the 20th of January. Um, there have apparently been spy planes uh, circling Presswick Airport uh, in preparation for him arriving there. Um, but the Scottish government have said that he'll be arrested if he arrives, which would be very amusing to see um, because, of course, the country. Uh, meaning Britain as a whole is uh, very much in the depths of, uh, of of the worst of the pandemic. Now we are the worst infected country in the world per capita. Uh, last week there were one in thirty Londoners with, uh, or a few days ago there were one in thirty Londoners with COVID. For context, that's about two hundred thousand people. Uh, absolutely huge numbers. Uh, we've got comfortably over a thousand people dying every day that's now going to continue probably for a good couple of weeks because of all of the social mixing which was allowed to go on um, over the Christmas period of course at COVID-19 it can incubate for quite a while as we know um, so the effects of it are are delayed um, you know as every as I mean as we've talked about it um, many many times on this podcast you know the government have pretty much done everything they can to make the uh, pandemic worse for people in this country. Um, and we are now uh, only a few days now into our, uh, into our second lockdown, which really should have been in place, you know, at the beginning of, uh, of December um, and, uh, and for a lot longer up until the beginning of the Christmas period and possibly beyond. Um, but it's, there's no, 
we've got vague promises of uh, of this vaccine, and there are I'm seeing some people in my uh, social media feeds saying that they're getting it, um, but there's also a sort of fear, I suppose, that somehow this government that has screwed everything up so far will also screw up the vaccine as well. And I don't want to be uh, too pessimistic about it, but um, what, what do you think the likelihood is, um, Bradley, that we're, we're going to have anything like a normal summer um, or, or even an autumn uh, this year? Yeah, I, I'm just looking at the, the timeline that the government's got. They say they're, they're hoping that um, the plan is for January to mid-February for um, everyone 75, 70 and upwards. No, sorry. So, 75 and upwards and then 70 to 74 clinically extremely vulnerable plus all care home residents and care home workers to, to be vaccinated by that point or you know a significant you know most of that that group to be vaccinated and then from the end of february onwards they're, they're basically going down through the age groups by the looks of it so i mean i think certainly by the time you get even assuming they overshoot this a little bit as they seem to overshoot everything even if we're looking at maybe sort of you know towards the end of february early march most people at the most extreme risk of, of, of dying if they catch COVID will will possibly you know be be vaccinated at that point, or or a, a very significant proportion of the most at risk people um, will be will possibly be vaccinated by by maybe end of February, early March, by, by a slightly optimistic um, thing. So you, you know, and then you're looking for out for the rest of spring and early summer probably to to get to to start working through the people that are less clinically. There is an argument because some countries have done it differently. You know, some focus on those that are, you know, young people that are out working in retail or, well, not retail in the UK, but other areas that where they happen to go into work. And they vaccinate those people first. So, you know, you tackle the people that are most likely to spread it and come in contact with it first. Whereas, um, whereas then, you know, in the UK, we've gone for, for the approach of people most likely to die from it first. Um, so I, I suppose there's a question of if there's a large chunk or almost all of the most clinically vulnerable have been vaccinated by by the spring, you know, by towards the end of spring, and and you've made inroads into those that are not very clinically vulnerable but still out and about quite a lot, quite likely to to catch it. Is it is it safe at that point to to ease most restrictions? Um, I, I suspect there's probably not a simple answer to that. There'd probably be a debate within science and and within politics about that as well. Um, but I, I do think certainly by the summer we might be looking at significantly less restrictions at least. Um, whether we're going to be, I, I don't, I don't think any time probably in twenty twenty one we're necessarily going to be back to what we would call normal. I think for some time yet we're probably still going to be wearing masks in a lot of places. We're probably going to be sanitising our hands uh, more frequently than probably was the case in the past. Um, and there is some talk of maybe in the winter having to maybe have new restrictions again each winter maybe this year and maybe next year even i think chris whitty's even hinted at something like 2024 um although whether that happens or not i don't know i certainly hope not but you know we we could see winter periods some sort of increased restrictions again um so none of that really answers your question but uh, I, I suppose for summer i think we'll probably be living in the looser restrictions but i would be really surprised if there's no restrictions well of course the other thing as well is that as we saw last year the um looser restrictions over the summer can lead to a resurgence of the virus eventually uh ewan what do you think 
You got your hand up. Um, I well, I actually just read it out. Uh, just read a quick thing. Uh, Matt Hancock's actually proposing that they may actually do a harder lockdown than we have at the moment. I think it'd probably mean closing all. Um, probably go back to closing takeaways and stuff. Maybe we'll see. Um, I don't but, think takeaways were ever closed, were they? No, well, they briefly were in uh, the first lockdown. For about a month, takeaways were briefly closed. That included McDonald's and various places uh, which do online delivery now. Uh, were um, they all, all, all takeaway? Because I'm sure I wouldn't have gone a month without takeaway and not noticed it. Uh, I think, wait, uh, when I mean takeaways, I really should rephrase, sorry. Uh, I mean stuff like Acosta or McDonald's. Oh, I see what you like mean. A, a Chinese, yeah, yeah. yeah, like a Chinese takeaway which runs as a takeaway. Um, I think we're still able to do it, but they had to, like, you know, they had to use it. You know, it's only driver drop it yeah, off, yeah, drop yeah, off yeah. delivery. I was going to say, I, I'm sure I would have would have remembered having to go a period of the month without a Chinese. <laughs> yeah, but I think, um, yeah, I, d- I did read about Chris Whitty say, you know, we're probably going to have to see some of the lingering effects carried for a while, and that makes sense because uh, the Spanish flu, uh, when that was a thing, that you know, everyone thinks it was from 1918 and then it kind of ends in 1919. The Spanish flu was still kind of hovering around um, kind of the Western world, at least, until about like 1923, I believe. So um, it just, the um, waves just got lower and lower because more and more people had had it and then became immune. So... Yeah, we are probably going to see a while, yeah. But I think there will be loosening of restrictions as soon as they can because this government is about trying to make sure it doesn't come off as too unpopular. Um, I think probably one of the most important things actually we'll probably see is I probably think the minute this crisis is done is there's probably going to be incredibly dramatic conservative cabinet reshuffle uh which probably sees a load of um members who uh probably quite a few members being taken out back and um being taken out back to the chemical sheds as it were or out back to the back benches um so yeah it's going to be interesting i think we will probably see some loosening restrictions by mid spring yeah, it's going to be a difficult one, that is, of what restrictions it's a bit, it, it, Obviously, it's a bit unpredictable, isn't it? Um, because, uh, because we don't know if this, if the vaccine is going to start ha- having it, having an impact on it. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm a bit confused by it because I thought initially that you had to have two doses uh, 28 days apart. And then the government turned around and said, well, actually, uh, in order to cover everyone, what we're going to do is we're going to give you your first dose and then you'll have to wait, uh, I think it's 12 weeks for your next one. Um, just, it seems like... Um, I think they are doing that. that. I think so. There it, is, it seems to be some debate within the science community about it, but it seems to be they've got some backing from, from scientists to do it in that they, they are delaying it a, a bit 
um, in order to try and get wider coverage of the first shot first. Yeah, so basically, they're, they're, yeah. they're prioritising, they're front-loading, getting enough people with the first jab first, rather than trying to get a smaller group of people having both jabs, if you know what I mean. Um, so uh, there is some debate as to whether that still maintains the efficiency of the, vi- the vaccine or not. But it seems to be, it, it's not like they've just completely ignored scientific advice, like they have to in, in other areas. And, and and just gone off and done it anyway. There, there does seem to be some scientific backing for it, although it seems to be slightly disputed, I think. I think um, Simon, Simon Stevens was talking about it on um, the briefing the other day, um, and he was mentioning how, because it gives you seven, at least 70%, depending on which vaccine you take, 70% immunity of some efficiency, because um, there had been a lot of debate but they were deciding that the best thing to do would be, as you said, vaccinate as many people as possible. And then at least there is some form of immunity around in the, um, you know, in the kind of space. And then it means that you can, it's easier. It means you can actually get more people vaccinated. And then also it means that you can, you don't have to worry about the death toll as much. And then you, it means it's easier vaccinating in the long run because if there's more people vaccinated, it's more of an immunity. It also means that you can start shifting who you're going to be vaccinating next earlier. Um, well, it's good that there's no, that, that it seems to be a more epidemiological uh, decision rather than purely political one. Uh, Callum. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was initially taken back by the uh, announcement that it was then going to be 12 weeks. Um, and there was a, obviously that ongoing debate, certainly among some political circles, as to whether this was a sensible decision from the government or whether it was um, it was going to end up effectively uh, damaging the vaccination attempt and we'd have to start again at square one. Um, in terms of the original question, I think, when it comes to lifting restrictions, I think it's going to have to be well into the summer. Because if you look at the vaccination timetable, even once they get up to a level where they have a million vaccinations a week, say, we're, we're still going to have a big chunk of the population come the summer that hasn't been vaccinated whatsoever. And if we've got to do it twice, that's, uh, what is that? That's about 130 odd million um, vaccinations that have to be issued obviously taking into account that some people um, don't get vaccinated for certain reasons and they can choose not to be vaccinated for uh, for reasons as well. Um, but I think that what we need is people to be vaccinated as soon as possible, um, but obviously in an orderly manner, in a way that is controlled, in a way that's led by the science, as it should be throughout this whole pandemic we've always been speaking about what is turned into a bit of a cliche is led by the science but it genuinely should be um but i also have a worry that there has obviously the the first vaccine the pfizer one we've been given initial uh, batch that w- have already been 100 percent issued and we're still waiting for the next batch which they said wouldn't come to the spring so obviously we are restricted by the supply chain as much as we are restricted by the logistical willpower to get it across the country and in the arm of as many people as possible. Um, And I also fear for the fact that if we don't get it done by the summer, obviously there will have to be restrictions in the autumn because of the 
um, mass moving of people across the country, namely young people such as myself that won't have been vaccinated yet, so potentially could be a, a vector to spread the the, uh, the virus. So obviously, I think it's caution that needs to be carried out. I don't think, as as the government has a tendency to end lockdown very quickly and immediately regret that enough to put the brakes on a few weeks later. I think that we need to take our time. We need to make sure everybody that wants a vaccine gets a vaccine and we need to make sure they're vaccinated properly and people are still following the regulations where necessary. And that's the only way we're going to defeat this because we, we know that letting it burn throughout the throughout the population is not a way forward. We know that taking off the brake too soon means that we're going to end up rolling down the hill and crashing and causing a lot more death and uh, and suffering for their families of, of people that have deceased because of this. So we just need to be careful. And I think that patience and just waiting indoors, I mean, there's worse places to be waiting. You know, I, I can think of a lot of queues that I've been in and thought, oh, this is rubbish. But actually being able to stay at home um, and still go out and shop and still see people on Zoom is, is, a, is a better luxury than what we've potentially could have had and what could have happened if we hadn't had any restrictions put in place. Mm. Well, of course, one of those things which is going to be impacted um, if the restrictions continue um, over the spring, summer and potentially into autumn as well as the uh, next set of local elections. Um, which are obviously due to happen in May. Now, the official line from the government is that those uh, elections are going to go as ahead as normal. They want to have what they've said is a normal election. Um, I've been talking to uh, a lot of political leaders locally um, who obviously are communicating themselves with the government. Um, a suggestion that was uh, coming forward initially uh, before and just after Christmas was that um, the elections would be pure postal. Um, however, now that we are in, or we're approaching mid-January, um, because in order to uh, sign up for a postal ballot these days, you need to have a, a signature verification, you have to apply uh, for a postal ballot, um, a fairly routine procedure in normal times because obviously people sign up for a postal ballot usually quite peacefully at meal but the logistical challenge of getting everyone in the country who wants to vote um, even though turnout in local elections is usually 20 or 30 percent that's still a huge logistical challenge um, there's even a, a, a one other factor as well if they were to keep polling stations open they would need to uh, provide an individual pencil for each potential voter. Um, so there's little logistical challenges like that. Getting the signatures for candidates, you need 10, uh, 10 signatures to stand. So you can't really go door to door asking for signatures in a normal way. So there's all these disruptions to our uh, democratic process um, that, that, are, uh, that are coming in. Um, so there's a, a, a distinct possibility now that the elections will be delayed uh, until the autumn. So I think that's, a, that's an important bit of, uh, of, of news uh, to go over. Um, so the question I, I want to ask really is that some people have, uh, have said that because of the government's mishandling 
of uh, this crisis. Obviously, this government is going to you know, do quite badly. Its reputation is going to be damaged. But there's also still quite a lot of people who uh, apparently seem to sympathise uh, with Boris Johnson um, and might do more. So if, say, as the year goes on, the vaccine is introduced and we come out of the pandemic, uh, even though we are going to be behind the rest of Europe in terms of our recovery, um, a, a later election might actually uh, favour the Tories. So what do you think, uh, Bradley, is going to be the long-term political uh, out- outcome from uh, these uh, screw-ups for, for, from the government and how will it be perceived by the public? Yeah, can I, can I just go back to, to the two-dose issue because there's a good bit of copy I found on the BBC website that's useful for that and then I'll, I'll answer the other bit. Um, so... So Pfizer, you know, who, who I think is the, the first lot of vaccines we've, we've started putting out to the population, have their, their sort of position seems to be, well, we've only tested the efficacy when the, there's two vaccines given 21 days apart. So they're, they're sort of saying we're, we're not, we're not we're, we can't comment on whether delaying the second dose, it, you know, what the efficacy that will be, because we, we've not tested that as far as this position. Um, but the, the chief medical officers in the UK have said that, um, so their claim is that the great majority of the initial protection comes from the first jab. And they've said the, the second vaccine dose is likely to be very important for duration of protection and at appropriate dose interval uh, may further increase vaccine efficacy. So it, it seems like what they're claiming is that the, the chunk of the protection you get from this two-dose vaccine comes in the first one and that the second one maybe adds a little bit of efficacy and, and also helps with long-term um, vaccination against the disease. So you can sort of see why, you know, I'm making these figures up, but as an example, if you had the choice between having 10 million people 70% protected or 5 million people 80% protected, if you then chuck that into a, a decent computer, it could tell you roughly what that would do to the spread of the virus, wouldn't it? And, and I imagine, you know, having a, a sacrificing a small amount of percentage of efficacy. Um, but doubling the amount of people that have got that efficacy probably would, depending on the numbers, would churn out a, 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 a delaying the virus and protecting more lives. Um, so so essentially, the second the second jab is like a booster shot, basically. That 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 seems to be the sort of gist of what this claim in the in the BBC article is on their website on the first of January. So you obviously I don't know the figures involved, um, but. And, and the truth of the claims by the medical officers but if that's the case you can sort of see why maybe the government's tended towards this option potentially um in in, in terms of the, the politics of things um i mean just, just as a note about the the democracy side of things i i work for a students union so i i'm gonna have to be facilitating um ele- elections in this context obviously less people involved than, than any local election um but uh it it, I, I have a lot of sympathy for council staffers that are going to have to do this because it's an absolute nightmare trying, trying to organise an entirely or almost at least entirely online election um, and, and you know, engaging voters in that process and, and all the rest of it and administer just you know, the nuts and bolts of administering it. So absolute sympathy and solidarity with council staffers that are going to have to be going through that over the next um, few months. I mean, I think... I think in terms of the immediate impact, if these council elections go ahead on, on the date, or even if they go ahead in September, I I imagine um, that there, there will be a number of people that might otherwise have voted Tory in a, in a parallel timeline and um, that may not this time because of their absolute ineptness. Um, 
I'm not going to try and guess at what that percentage of people is, um, but I don't know if those are necessarily then going to turn into votes flocking to the Labour Party. Um, or, or the Lib Dems. I mean, when was the last time anyone heard anything about the Lib Dems? Um, I, I can't recall the last time I heard them mentioned in a, in a podcast or, or a news report. Um, and, and, you know, Keir Starmer, obviously I have my own ideological disagreements with him, but I, I, I don't see that he's been this sort of great, you know, uh, rabble-rouser and, and someone that's greatly inspired the public. I, I don't really see that. So I'm sure I'm sure Labour will benefit to some degree from, from lost Tory votes, you know, Tories losing votes, and you know, some of that will probably go to Labour. Maybe some of that will go to the Dems, depending on the seat it's in. But I, I don't think we're necessarily going to see a mass exodus from from the Tory party to to any of the rival parties. I think the Tories will probably suffer a bit. I think a lot of that maybe will just be people staying away from the polls, both because of practical COVID reasons and also maybe just a bit of exasperation with with, with the whole situation. In that might look a bit different actually if the elections are delayed to September. If, if the government manages to do quite a good vaccination programme and, and we, we've seen quite a, a good proportion of the population vaccinated by then, if cases in, and, and if we do have that, obviously cases and deaths and hospital admissions and all that will, will hopefully be very, very low if, if we manage by September to, to run a good vaccination programme. Um, that might give the government space to, to finally um, bulk up test and trace. And, and if there's lower numbers of cases, they might be able to more effectively operate a test and trace system. Um, so you can see maybe in September if the government does things well, which is by no means a given if you look at their track record on this on this pandemic. But if they do, you can see that actually maybe they might not lose as many votes in September as they might do if the election were held in May. Um, in, in terms of even further beyond that, I I, I really don't know. I think it's um, I think Boris, if he's still around, if he hasn't resigned or anything in in a couple of years' time. He, he's going to want to go very much into his shtick of, you know, we're a great country, let's invest here, let's let's do this, let's do that. Britain's fantastic, we're free of the EU, let, let's go and be an incredible nation again. Um, and I, I think he did that fairly effectively pre-pandemic, actually. Well, you know, he won an election. Um, so he, he must have been doing something right. Um, I, I think I did take the wind out of Labour's sails a little bit, because obviously pre-Boris, the Tories were still sort of seen as the austerity party. Um, and, and Corbyn was offering quite a radical break with austerity. I think that's Corbyn's longing achievement, uh, you know, lasting achievement is that, you know, he, he changed the discussion, he changed the debate in British politics on austerity. Obviously, COVID's dealt it its final death now for now. Um, I would be very surprised. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some in the Tory party, maybe Rishi Sunak and, and others in the Treasury that want to probably go back to some sort of austerity like given the massive expenditure that the, the UK state has put in over the last 10 months. Um, so there will be those pressures within the party uh, I, I don't think Boris himself necessarily I, I don't think Boris is really committed to much in terms of macroeconomics I, I think he will just go where he thinks the votes are so I think there's a there's a chance you'll see a, a Boris in a couple of years time if, if the pandemic's largely managed by that point you know trying to very much talk up Britain and give token bits of investment here and there but it's just enough to 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 damage you know the 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 unique appeal that Labour has to offer in terms of that and I think that will be exasperated by by Starmer and 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 how radical and bold Starmer wants to be in terms of putting his vision forward because we've not really seen Starmer have a fair shot at it yet in some degrees because his whole leadership has been defined by Covid and, and Brexit so far so we've not really seen what it's like to see Johnson and Starmer go toe-to-toe on on nuts and bolts economic issues um, but I, I'm not hugely hopeful that Starmer will offer a compelling enough vision to, to thwart Boris's 
um, you know, taken bits of investment here and there. Mm. Just a note as well, absolutely total solidarity with council workers as well as talking to a, a councillor yesterday who uh, said that they can't really plan um, all of their uh, their expenditure for the local elections effectively. It's worth bearing in mind that the government isn't going to give them any extra money now uh, for dealing with local elections or, or indeed it seems with COVID. So they've now got to make a decision whether to spend a lot of money in a short period of time on the assumption that the elections are going to go ahead in May or try and stretch it out. But of course, obviously, if they try and stretch it out over a long period of time and the elections do happen in May, then obviously there might not have been an adequate preparation in terms of, you know, advertising, people registering to vote and getting people signed up for postal ballots, which will be so critical. Um, another example of the of central government's disdain for local government, despite its importance uh, in, in uh, planning and executing effective uh, strategies during uh, during this current pandemic. Uh, Ewan, you've got your hand up. Yes. Um, to kind of think about uh, local government as earlier about the Lib Dems, uh, one of the reasons why the Lib Dems aren't doing well and why they're not getting voice across is because the Lib Dem tradition has always been the, uh, you know, none of the above party as it were and so it's big thing is you know it does well when it goes out in the streets and it's canvassing and you know you get the people who are like oh i don't really like any of the parties that's where lib dems always have done well and because they're not being able to go out canvassing and do giving out leaflets they're kind of buggered <laughs> um as for rishi sunak and him wanting to do austerity I'm not sure if Rishi Sunak would really be in the position after everything that's happened. Like, I know there was that weird period of time where every single person was like, Rishi Sunak is going to be the next Prime Minister. Boris Johnson is going to step down and Rishi Sunak will be Prime Minister. But after all the, like, after December and him going back up to Yorkshire after being told you can't go out of London and him just not appearing for about two months of it. He just kind of just didn't appear. Um, like, his credibility, I think, has gone down massively. Um, so I think uh, austerity... Is the, I don't think we'll have austerity in the same way that we had it in the 2010s, because that's a bit of a politically, um, you know... Uh, wobbly term now so I think you'd probably see some form of austerity somewhere but I don't think it'd be you know I, I don't think they would be loud about it you know you wouldn't be go, having you know that kind of hand you know you wouldn't have Boris hand rigging kind of going oh we need to tighten our belts a bit because you know people have been for a lockdown and they're like well you know, you, you had all this money available, surely you should be able to, like, still pay off all this stuff and, you know, not have to commit austerity as well. So I'll be interested to see what happens in the next couple of years for Conservatives. And I th think um, Conservative Party cabinet criminology is going to be very fun in the years to come as every newcomer is pipped as being a possible replacement to 
Boris Johnson and then they do something stupid and get smacked down, smacked back down again. So, yeah, we'll see. Mm. Okay, uh, Callum, what's your take on it? Uh, well, I, I think in terms of what what would be austerity uh, prior to the pandemic, I think they might sell it as streamlining the economy for this uh, this new glitzy and glamorous uh, British economy post Brexit that they're they're going to be promoting. Um, so it'll be more promoted as as cutting back the waste, so we can really focus on what's important. We all know that's rubbish, and we all know that is austerity, but with a different name. But I think if I was in the Conservative Party, that's how I would sell it. If I was uh, a policymaker there, um, in terms of the the local elections, I think that that's an interesting conundrum because obviously we didn't have the local elections last year, and if we was to move the local elections this year too near to the ones happening next year, certainly in Lincoln we have that problem um, that we have. Uh, elections every year in the city um it's less so in other areas but there will be local elections up and down the country every single year so now we've got a situation where we're stacking up local elections um which is going to cause a lot of financial pressure and uh, logistical pressure indeed on the local governments and local authorities just at the point where they haven't really got much um money and indeed a lot of people are being redeployed for different services because that's where they're needed at the moment. So it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a very difficult situation. But in terms of the outcomes, I think that the Labour Party, if it wants to get anything out of this upcoming local elections, what we need to do is to say this is the alternative. This is what you could have with a Labour councillor, with a Labour um, mayor with a Labour um, representative in your area, whichever system they're using. And I think that that positive campaigning, whilst also reflecting on the disaster that has been the Conservatives over the last few years, and obviously they couldn't predict a pandemic, but what they could do is react to it in a way that protects lives and protects the NHS and, and, and ensures that the most vulnerable are, are shielded and protected. We're actually we we we've passed what is it eighty thousand now? We're approaching eighty thousand deaths. When they say the best case scenario is twenty thousand, more, more than um, more than eighty thousand now. More than eighty thousand. There we go. And and they said that the best case would be twenty thousand. So it's a serious failure. It's a serious failure. So we've got to get that balance right between saying this is what's happened in the past with the Conservatives. They don't really care about you. What they care about is economic prosperity at all costs. Therefore, we'll keep the shops open. We'll keep the pubs open. It doesn't matter if you die because it, all that matters is the money flowing. Where actually, Labour needs to turn around and say, actually, a society where we care for people, a society where everybody's looked after and we invest in public services, actually leads to better prosperity and a better life for everyone. And that's the sort of platform we need to be standing on. And we need to be having some some real radical suggestions on how we're going to do that. Actually looking to change people's lives, not maintain the status quo and change the name of it. Mm. I know, absolutely. I think that's a very uh, good point to end on as well. I think we'll be trying to push that line um, forward. 
um, from the bottom, even if uh, the, the uh, even if the leadership isn't so keen. I think, um, as I said earlier, we do need to seize this moment uh, to really get people to rally around the idea that actually, you know, we can organize society differently. You know, this, the Tories ran the NHS into the ground for 10 years uh, into a position where it was very much weakened in the face of a pandemic. We can't allow that to happen again. Um, so before we before we go, I'll uh, get final final thoughts and uh, from from you all. So you uh, and just had your hand up. So I'll I'll come to you first. To your fi final thoughts on the on the situation. Um, in some ways, I think the next few years are going to be interesting. Um, we'll have to see how things go. I think. A lot of what people will probably be thinking will be, um, like, the main thing uh, now. So, for example, I think there's a lot of people that think that Rishi Sunak is going to be Prime Minister in, like, two years. I think what a lot of people think will be common for now won't be the same in two years' time. But I do think that Labour probably has the best chance to... If it, if it does capitalise on the problems and the inadequacies of the government. And if it does that, then I could see at least, it's a very big hill to climb, but I could see as, I don't know, getting a minority government out of it at least. That, that would be something, I, I guess. <laughs> and at least, uh, then at least you can build the minority government. Um, so that's the hope. Yes, that's 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 a minimum uh, sort of thing to aim for, isn't it? Um, Bradley, your final thoughts. Um, yeah, really, I just think it, it. New year, we need to we need to be mobilising, don't we, as much as we can in in you know sort of. I mean, we're all sort of probably quite good at Zoom and things, aren't we? We've had we've had ten months of it. It's not Zoom it, online organising is almost second nature, I think, to to a lot of groups now because because we've had. We had so long of it. It almost seemed. I, it occurred to me the other day when we were in a Labour Party meeting that there was a time when we actually met up in person and sat around a table together and had these meetings. And it, for a second there, it almost felt weird to think that we used to do that. That I don't know if anyone else feels that way, but it's got it's got to the point now where taking you, know, I think meeting, I think Zoom, and I sort of almost forgotten the days of when we used to meet in person for them. Obviously, I hope those days come back. But what that means is that you know, in this new year now, we can hit we can hit the ground running, can't we? We're, we're all very well versed in how to organise online. And I think, you know, the left in Britain needs to, to start doing so. Um, I, I, th I mean, I think you and, and Callum, you were right earlier when you said we're in a better position than, than we were, uh, you know, back to 2010 or something. I think post-Corbyn, we're in a much better position than we were than pre-Corbyn. You know, various think tanks have emerged, uh, you know, more sort of popular media outlets, like Navarra Media and others um, have developed around that time. So I think that, the intellectual and activist landscape of the left is better than it was five years ago. But there's still a long way to go, and I think the right is probably a bit better organised than it is, better financed and all the rest of it. So what I'm trying to say in my in my final bit is um, we need to make this year the year we start fighting back a bit. 2019, the end of 2019 was disastrous for the left. 2020 has been disastrous for everyone. Um, 2021 needs to be the year, despite how difficult it's going to be at least the first half, it needs to be the year when we start to really mobilise as the left, um, and, and we can't use COVID as an excuse not to anymore because the stakes are too high. Yeah. 
very good sentiments and uh, I don't think I can do much better than that so uh, I think it's been a very good uh, very good session we have overrun slightly um, but uh, it's been a pl real pleasure to talk to you um, so it will be goodbye from me for now and goodbye from Callum Roper goodbye everyone stay safe and we'll see you next time you and Hudson uh, have a nice week everyone uh, yeah stay safe stay indoors and all that and Bradley also. Bye, folks. Stay safe, um, and we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.